This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel in for John Dankosky. Tomorrow is November 11th, first designated in 1919 by President Woodrow Wilson as Armistice Day to mark the end of World War I. It was renamed Veterans Day after World War II to honor all Americans who have served. Today, where we live, we focus on them. There are more than 200,000 veterans living in Connecticut, and we've been airing some of their stories in a special project called Eleven of Us. Later this hour, we'll talk with a New York filmmaker about a new documentary called Thank You for Your Service. First, I want to share an extended interview with a remarkable man. Over the last few weeks, WNPR has been airing Eleven of Us, stories from former and current members of the military, men and women from several different generations. Ben Cooper of Colchester is one of those voices. He's 93 years old and served in World War II. He told me when the war started, he, like many men from that generation, wanted to enlist immediately. First, he got a job at Colt Firearms in Hartford. When he was drafted, the Army sent him for training to become a combat medic. When Ben got the news he would be sent to Europe, there was something he had to do first, and that was marry a special lady named Dorothy. Here's Ben Cooper with the rest of his story. And on September 1st of 1944, I was um, boarded a Liberty ship with other soldiers. We left Norfolk, Virginia. They had a little band playing for us. Some of the fellas kissed the ground before we left. We got on a Liberty ship. It was not that big. And we went out into the Atlantic Ocean. And there we joined what is known as a convoy, a hundred of the ships just like the one I was on. And we had Navy destroyers that kept us company when we went across the Atlantic. It took us 30 days to cross the Atlantic Ocean because we went very slow. And um, we had no idea where we were going. They don't tell you anything. But we finally ended up in the Straits of Gibraltar, and we were in the Mediterranean Sea, and we landed at Naples, Italy. Naples was already in the Allied hands. And um, the harbor had been bombed out, but... There was room for us with our Liberty ship. And when we got off the ship, they put us in trucks, and they took us to a small town called Caserta in Italy. And the, actually, the town, it was what well, is known as a repl- depot, replacement depot. This is where all soldiers coming to, to this part of the war were going to be assigned. Not, I was a medic, but I wasn't going to be in the hospital. I was going to be in the frontline infantry. And so I got assigned to what was known as the 45th Infantry Division. And uh, that from that time on is when I, the rest of the time I spent with the 45th in France till the end of the war. Can I ask you what was going through your mind on that ship while you were in that convoy? Um, did you think that you would see Dorothy again? Truthfully, I, we, had, we all had no idea what we were in for. I was hoping I would, but uh, there wasn't much to do aboard ship. We had a radio where you could play checkers. Um, And um, so we had a radio, and we heard music from that era, like Don't Sit Under the Apple Tree, I'll Be Seeing You As Time Goes By. And you know where the music was coming from, Lucy? From Berlin, Germany. There was an American woman who worked for the Nazis, and her name was, um, one minute, my mind went blank all of a sudden. At my age. Oh, Axis Sally. There we are. We hit the jackpot. Axis Sally was her name. She would broadcast every day to us, play the music, and in between, 
she would say, we know where you're going, we know what you're going to do, give yourself up, and we'll treat you humanely, and all that bunk. Now, the soldiers in the Pacific also had music similar to ours. It was come from Tokyo, Japan. The woman was called uh, Tokyo Rose. I think it was a Tokyo Rose. And she would broadcast the similar music with the same propaganda about giving yourself up. But as I say, uh, there wasn't much else to do on board ship. We used to sometimes, there were no lights aboard ship at night, but we had the Navy destroyers circling us in case there were any German U-boats in the area. We used to, uh, someone knew about the stars and where the North Star was, but basically there was nothing to do. But uh, as I say, we landed in Naples, and that's when I got assigned to the 45th Infantry Division. And I found out I was not going to be in the hospital, but I was going to be in a frontline infantry office. We're hearing an interview with World War II veteran Ben Cooper of Colchester, who's sharing stories from his military service in Europe. He served as a combat medic with the U.S. Army. So you said that you were sent to the front lines. Yes. What was that like? Well, let me just tell you how it happened. My alpha was called the Thunderbird Division, the 45th Infantry. So we boarded a Navy ship, and this took us to Marseille. It took us three days to get to Marseille there. The ocean was very rough. We were all seasick. But when we got to Marseille, France, the harbor had also been bombed out, and we were some distance away. So what they did, we, we were issued duffel bags where we carried all our belongings in. They took all our belongings and put them in a big net and brought them to the shore and dropped them there. And we were to pick out our own duffel bag when, they, when we got to shore. We had to climb over the side of the ship, and we got into small boats called duck boats that took us to shore. Our duffel bags, the only identification they had on it was our name and our serial number. The serial number is eight numbers that you're assigned when you enter the service, and this is your whole identification. I finally found my bag, and they told us when you find your duffel bag, there were a thousand bags there, we found it, I found mine. They said, go to the railroad station nearby, and we boarded a freight train. The freight train was going to take us up to where our outfit, near where our outfit was fighting. And uh, the freight trains had no latrines, just plain freight trains. These were the freight trains that the French used in World War I. They were called 40 and 8. The reason they're called 40 and 8 is because it would hold 40 men or 8 horses back in World War I. It took us another three days to get to the center of France, and we, the train stopped. We got off the train, and they broke us up into small groups, probably 40 in a group, and they sent us to nearby farms in that area to get acclimated before they brought us up to the front. I was at this farm, and one of the first things I did was I, to meet the other soldier. I'd say, Where, what state are you from, and so forth. One fellow said he was from Newington, Connecticut, which is just outside of Hartford, and he was only 18 years old, young fellow, and uh, he was a rifleman. And so while we were there, uh, every night they had a big barn there. And we went to the barn. We watched movies from home. Eight, I think it was 16-millimeter sixty-millimeter movies. But the night before, they were going to bring us up to the front lines. They told us that we couldn't sleep on the floor, which we normally did every night. We had no idea why we couldn't sleep there. So we slept in the loft uh, in the barn. And we woke up in the morning. We got our first shock of our life. In almost every infantry outfit, 
during World War II. There's a group of American soldiers called Graves Register. What these soldiers do is go out into the field when the shooting has stopped, pick up the American soldiers that had just been killed, and bring them back to one particular spot. This happened to be the spot that they brought them back into. And they were all, we woke up in mind, the whole floor was covered with American soldiers still in their uniforms, just lying there. And it was the next day, we boarded trucks and they took us closer to the front. I can't imagine waking up to that site and then knowing that you're now going to the front lines where these men uh, were. I right. mean, how did you reconcile that um, in your mind well, as you're headed there? We're all in the same boat. There's a whole group of us. It wasn't just me. It's not like you're saying, hey, I don't think, I'm go- I, don't think I want to do this. I want to go home. You're there for a purpose, and you just do what you have to do. And so they brought us closer to the front, and they said, we were in this town of Epinal, it's called, and they said, watch the soldier in front of you. We marched in the line in the town. Whatever he does, you do. If he falls down, you fall down, because they were shooting artillery shells at us. And naturally, the soldier in front of me, he was like a seasoned soldier. He knew when to drop or what to do. There's no way to protect yourself from an artillery shell if it's going to hit you. You never knew when your number was up, either from a sniper or from artillery or whatever. Even at 93, Ben told me there were moments of the war that remained with him. A memory that haunted him for years was what he saw when his unit, the Thunderbirds, liberated Dachau concentration camp. Now, you're asking about Dachau concentration camp. We had no idea that there was a concentration camp called Dachau. The commander from from the 45th Infantry Division got orders to secure a camp. Don't let anybody in. Don't let anybody out. But his orders, he took as many men as he needed and he also took some tanks. They had to fight their way into the camp. The guards were shooting at our, at our soldiers, and they had to fight their way in. They overcame the guards. They got through the gates, and what they saw was unreal. Our troops that were there the first day vomited. They got sick at what they saw. I was not there the first day. I was there the third day. My group and I, we went on to Munich, which is further into Germany, a big city called Munich. We had captured Munich, and within a day or so, they told us, you're going to go back to visit a camp. We had no idea what kind of camp. We just thought it was a camp. I didn't have my camera with me. It probably didn't have any film anyway. And they put us in trucks, and then we came to the camp called Dachau Concentration Camp. The camp was three miles square. It had a big iron gate at the entrance. There was wired, electrified wire all around, but that was taken care of when our troops got there the first day. And on the fence, it said, on the iron gate, it said, Arbeit macht frei. Work will set you free. Horrible thing. Never true. But they let us into the camp, but they wouldn't let us go to any other part of the camp because... There was so much dysentery and typhus around, it's very contagious. But they did let us go into one big open field, like a football field. And they said, you wait there. Those that can walk will come and talk to you. 
The others are still in their barracks. There were about 32 wooden barracks in the camp, single-story buildings, wooden. It was built in 1933, the camp was. It was Hitler's, one of Hitler's first camps that he built, concentration camp. It was supposed to hold about 400 inmates. It was now holding about 1,600 in each building. The sick, the living, and the dying in each building were in one place. Very few latrines. The disease was widespread there. When we got to the camp with my group, the air, not even at the camp, before we even got to the camp, we could smell this burning flesh. It was like a very acrid smell. We, we said, what's going on here? We, we weren't at the camp yet. But when we got to the main camp, it was horrible. Help came from everywhere once we liberated the camp. There were other outfits that also liberated the, outfit, the, the camp. But in my outfit, they were considered one of the first to be there. When you saw these atrocities, how did it impact you personally? When I was at this open field, we waited and waited, and finally we saw some people coming toward it very slowly. A lot of them were dressed in like blue and white faded pajamas. A lot, some were dressed fairly well. And when they got to us, they hugged us, they kissed us, and they gave us names of people they knew in the United States. It was so traumatic, I can't tell you. I couldn't tell men from women. I was just overcome, and so were my buddies. It, it was something I'll never, ever forget what the bastards did to innocent people. And this was just a small part of it. And as I say, it's something that lives with me every day. After the war, in the state capital in Hartford, they have a memorial every year for the Holocaust. And I usually wear my Eisenhower's jacket, just like I'm wearing now. And I try to attend it every year. I was there one year, and a man walked up to me in civilian clothes, and he recognized the Thunderbird emblem. And he said to me, I remember that. And I said, why, were you at Dachau? He said, yes. He was there with his wife as inmates when we liberated the camp. We became good friends. That was in 1996. In 2006, I went to my cardiologist in Hartford, St. Francis Hospital. He said, Ben, you got a blockage. And I had to have open-heart surgery. The surgeon that operated me, the cardiac surgeon that operated me and saved my life was the son of these two people that were inmates. That was their son. His name was Dr. Jacob Scheinerman, and he saved my life. And uh, it's just something, what goes around comes around. That's Ben Cooper of Colchester. He's a World War II veteran who served with the 45th Infantry Division, the same unit that liberated Dachau concentration camp. During our conversation, I asked Ben about how he transitioned home after the war. There were no counselors. We didn't have any counselor to, if we had any problems, whatever. We were let loose. <laughs> Once you got your discharge, uh, you're free to go. I had my duffel bag with me, and I, I came home. But what I didn't realize, what I had witnessed, was something in my chest. I couldn't get it off. I had a tough time at night, but eventually I'd fall asleep. But it's something I'll never, ever forget. 
Some of my buddies took to drinking because drinking was very popular at that time, alcohol. And some become alcoholics from that. There were no drugs like they have today. So really, you were on your own to manage the transition. And thank God, it's something that I, I, I handled pretty pretty well. My religion also helped. I'm not a devout uh, Jewish uh, with religion, but uh, I'm very proud to be Jewish. I'm proud that I serve my country. And uh, it's something I ha- you have to work out yourself, and I did. I did work it out. I never told, by the way, I never told my wife, my children, or my parents about what I witnessed. I had pictures, and I showed them once to somebody, and they said, oh, that can't be, it's not real. And I had the pictures, and I never, it wasn't until 1990 when a teacher from Torrington called me up and said, I understand you're a hero. I said, a hero for what? I said, and he told me, I said, no, I wasn't here. I just did what I had to do. He came down, videotaped me in a very nice way. And from that time, I got in touch with schools. And as I say, I've been speaking to schools since 1990. And since I met my friend Henny Simon, we speak together. Uh, schools, colleges, Coast Guard, wherever they want us, uh, we make it a point to talk to students. It's, it's great for them because it's an eye-opener for them, and it's been a healing process for us. It takes, we never get over it but it does heal in some way. It's gratification to see these young citizens growing up to know what happened. They have to be in touch with history because if you forget the past, you can't have a good future. So you have to remember the past. Being a medic, I saw while I was with the infantry many new soldiers coming in because they, our soldiers were killed or wounded. Uh, you never knew when your time was up but I witnessed this quite a bit. And when there was a new soldier, when there was no shooting going on, one of the first things he would do is sit down and write a letter to his loved ones or someone he cared for. And sometimes the same day or a week later, he was gone. He was either killed or wounded. So I became very superstitious, and I stopped writing letters home. But when the war ended, we were in Munich, Germany, and I wrote a letter to my wife, telling her what I witnessed and what I, how I felt about her. And I'd like to read it to you now. <clears throat> what can I say, my darling, when words I cannot find to express my love for you, my beloved darling wife? And though we're miles apart, you are and have always been right here inside my lonely, aching heart. As I sailed across the ocean blue, and through the straits on a liberty to Italy, and there received with so much glee your inspirational letters, which meant so much to me. And then to France, where I was given a job, far different from the one I thought I would have found. Another fellow was doing his part, till the fickle finger of fate had found his heart. And now I was to carry on. I prayed, my darling, that I may live, to see mother and dad and you, my darling sweet. I pray that you and I may be one and have our own in our own home. I prayed each day in my own way, sometimes in foxholes or in the rain or covered with snow, oh so cold, or in a house where I'd feel a little safer 
from the snow and the rain and the cold, but most of all, the hot shrapnel of bursting shells that knew no man, a father or an uncle, a brother or cousin, an only son, one of a dozen. Catholic, Jew, Protestant, black, white, good or bad, carried a gun or a Red Cross armband. God, will this war ever end? Attack and attack did the infantry, right on into Germany, but never knowing from where or when the enemy may try to strike back again and do the things that war is hated for. There were big towns and small towns, rivers and streams, roadblocks and trees, and so many things. The people seemed friendly, at least so it seemed. What was happening to Hitler's dream? We traveled in convoys for miles at a stretch, dusty and dirty and tired and wet, searching for jerrys and snipers, those rats. Houses were burning and cattle lie dead. Whoops, be careful, they say there's mines up ahead. How could you hate such people as these who gave you their eggs and beer from the kegs? Every minute of the day, you could hear them say, next Nazi, which means I'm not a Nazi. Oh, such nice people, I dare say. But then came the horror and cruelty beyond one's imagination could ponder upon. There was Dachau, Buchenwald, Buchenwald, and more camps about where civilization was simply wiped out. This was our answer to why we fought on and how our hatred for the Germans was found. And as today I reminisce of all the boys we sure do miss, I cannot help but say a prayer for those who fell. May they rest in peace. Cohia, Keller, Cain, and Sales, and a prayer for those who live. Oh, darling, I don't feel any smarter for all the things I've seen and done. I just feel oh so lonesome for you, my dearest one and only one. And I hope and pray that someday I'll be sailing back across the ocean blue to you to live in love as time goes by in our home for two or four or more and vanish the lonesomeness that's in my heart. For you, my sweetheart, my darling wife, till then, God bless you every day and night. Sweet dreams, sweetheart. I love you with all my heart, your hubby. May 8th, 1945, Munich, Germany, 179th Infantry Regiment, 45th Infantry Division. In that was that was then in September of nineteen two o o nine, my wife passed away. It was I lost my soulmate. You never lose the one you love. If you love the one you lose, but. A year later, I belonged to a, a group of veterans called the Jewish War Veterans in West Hartford. And my buddy said, you've got to meet someone who's written a book how she survived the concentration camp. She lives in Colchester. And I said, how do I meet her? I finally met her. I went to Colchester. She had a farm in Colchester. She, and I read, I was, she gave me the book, and I started reading her book. And I could not believe person at 16 years old, teenager, to be taken away with her mother to a ghetto in Latvia for t- over two years, and then a concentration camp where, where her mother was murdered. Her mother fell down in the camp and broke her leg. She was sent to the hospital, and eventually they killed everybody in the hospital. Unreal. And this, 
so we have teamed up together. We give talks everywhere. She talks as being a survivor, Holocaust survivor, and I talk about liberating the camp. And uh, we've become uh, together, and her name is Henny Simon. And so we call it the Henny Benny presentation. <laughs> and um, it's our mission in life to let everybody know, and especially school students, high school, college students, civic groups, whoever wants to hear us. We tell it as it was. We don't have to exaggerate. And we have a, I have a motto that I live by, we both live by, and I have it printed on my card. And it's a very simple. There's still a lot of bullying and hate going on in the country, everywhere. And on the back of the card, it just says, this is our way to save humanity. Stop hatred and bullying by practicing my life-saving motto. No act of kindness, no matter how small, is ever wasted. You can do it, never give up. And always remember, we all belong to the same race, regardless of your race, your color, your religion, the human race. And this is what we have been doing since then. Well, thank you so much. And um, if you don't mind, could you just push the microphone towards your son? I just wanted to ask your son, you know, quickly, since you're here, if you could just tell me, you know, what it's like to to hear your father, you know, tell these stories so many years later. My name is Rick Cooper, and uh, I'm very proud of my father because he his message is so important, especially in in these times. And uh, I'm very proud of him that he makes the effort to go to all these different schools and talk to so many people, thousands and thousands of of, of people. And uh, his message is very well received. I mean, they he gets letters from many, many children uh, and adults, and they're just beautiful, beautiful letters. He has a whole pile of them that it's just, they're great to read. Um, that letter that uh, my, that he wrote to my mother, I remember the first time he tried to read it. It was, it was a holiday. The family was together, and he brought out this letter. I think I was in my late teens, and he could not read that letter without breaking down completely. Um, and we were all crying at the table. So it's just a, it is a healing process because now he, he can read the whole letter, and you know, it's, it's, he's the best dad in the world. You know, uh, Dad will be 94 in December, God willing. That was Rick Cooper. His father, Ben Cooper, is a World War II veteran who shared stories from his service as part of a special project called Eleven of Us. Learn more at our website, including photos of Ben with items from World War II. That's at WNPR.org. Coming up, we'll talk with a filmmaker about a new documentary called Thank You for Your Service. This is Where We Live.
where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel in for John Dankosky. In recent years, there has been more attention given to mental health issues facing veterans, given eye-opening statistics like the federal VA's estimate of 22 veterans die by suicide each day. And the New York Times report that more active-duty military died by suicide in 2012 than those killed in combat in the Iraq and Afghanistan wars. A new documentary premiering this Friday in New York City explores some of the reasons behind the suicide epidemic. Tom Donahue is director-producer of Thank You for Your Service. It's the latest project from Creative Venture Media Group. And Tom joins us by phone. Hi, Tom. Hi, how are you? I'm well. I read that you've produced documentaries on a wide range of topics. What led you to focus in on the mental health issues facing veterans? I had uh, an investor from Long Island who had sent me uh, an op-ed by Nicholas Kristof of the New York Times back in 2012. And it was called A Veteran's Death, A Nation's Shame. And it was about the skyrocketing uh, mental health issues and the uh, suicide epidemic in the military. And he said, would you want to do a documentary on this? And I had one of my best friends, my best friend, kill himself. Uh, he hanged himself in his closet when uh, we were both 21 years old. So the issue of suicide was very near and dear to me. And my father was a veteran. So I immediately connected to the issue and said, yes, I want to do this. And when I started, I didn't know, I didn't know what the movie was going to be. I just started. I actually started at West Point, and I started interviewing generals and colonels and slowly kind of started to think I got to the bottom of what some of the issues were. You touched on that uh, suicide impacted your life several years ago. You know, mental health is not a topic that many people are comfortable talking about, whether you're a civilian or a veteran, because of stigma. So how did your team find these former service members who were open to talking about their struggles, given the trauma they experienced while in combat? Good question. You know, I hadn't had a lot of exposure to military personnel, so I assumed and my producers assumed we would have a hard time getting people to talk about their trauma. And in some cases we did. But across the board, everyone we talked to were very open and willing to talk, not necessarily willing to break down on camera, but they were really willing to be honest as much as they could without breaking down and crying on camera. And it, got, it could get very emotional in the interview. Interwoven through the documentary are the stories of, of several veterans, including Kenny Toon, who served with the U.S. Marine Corps. We're going to hear a clip from one of your interviews with Toon. But first, can you tell us a little bit more about him? He was in the reserves in Salt Lake City. And uh, I think he went in in 1999, and he was called up in 2003 to serve in Iraq. And he was in the initial invasion of Baghdad as part of uh, Marines Fox Company, 223. As part of your interview, what really struck me is when Kenny in the film is describing that as a Marine, he was trained to, quote, be someone who can look death in the face and run right at it. But we learned that for as much training as Kenny had before going into combat, he and the other veterans in the film were clearly not prepared by the military for the after effects of war. You know, what happens to them when they come home? Let's listen to Kenny. It would actually make me upset when people would come up to me and say, oh, thank you for your service. Welcome home. I would get angry and I'd be like, what do you know? What do you know about being home and and coming back from a war and living with these memories? That's really timely thinking about, you know, Veterans Day coming up and, you know, civilians so often will say thank you for your service, but it may not be a welcome message to all veterans. One caveat is it is to a lot of veterans. They love to hear that. But what they don't want it to be is to be just a superficial greeting. 
Shortly after that clip, we learn that Toon suffers from a form of trauma called moral injury. And that might be the first time um, viewers have ever heard of this. But it, to me, I thought it, sp- it spoke to the larger point that you know, just saying that a veteran has PTSD doesn't get to the root of their mental health issues and whether the military or the healthcare system reaches out to help them. Yes, very true. I actually say in the film in an intertitle that there are as many kinds of war trauma as there are physical injuries. And that's something we as Americans don't really think of because of this blanket term, post-traumatic stress disorder. And like a lot of veterans, Toon talks about, you know, he was prescribed pills to help him deal with his trauma, that they were, quote, his way to escape. And um, that's been something that the VA has gotten a lot of criticism for over the last several years is over-prescribing opiates and other prescription drugs to veterans. It's not been an easy fix for them. Right. And it's also a problem within the military where uh, the military personnel are actually over-prescribed medication as well. And that's part of the systemic issue that I bring up in the military for the need for a, a kind of an integrated behavioral health core. The psychiatrists are part of the medical core, and therefore they tend to prescribe you know, medicine first and foremost over any kind of cognitive therapy, which the psychologists and the social workers would do, but they actually don't speak to each other because the psychiatrists and the psychologists and the social workers are in a different core than the psychiatrists. And we hear often from this retired Navy commander, a psychologist, Mark Russell. He talks about um, the problem, this disconnect, and he was one of the ones that was sounding the alarm in the military that there were not ways to help these active duty service members who were being deployed over and over again throughout the Iraq and Afghanistan wars. That's true. And uh, a lot of his uh, speaking out were just met with dismissals, basically, like uh, He spoke out, and it made the cover of USA Today in 2007, and the Navy then sent a memo of talking points, basically denying all of his charges. And this was before uh, there was actually a commission by the military to investigate the mental health crisis a year later, where they admitted a lot of the same things that Mark had brought up a year before. So they knew about a lot of these problems, but it it was all kept hidden. I wanted to play another clip from the film. This is from, I think, psychiatrist Joseph Tarantolo. Um, He takes issue with continuing to find trauma as a medical problem. Let's listen. As soon as we define it as a medical problem, it's easy to dismiss the soldier. There's something wrong with his brain. We have to stop referring to veterans who are traumatized as sick and look at them more as they are holding something for us. Guilt, the shame, the confusion, the fog of war. How do we approach it in a non medical, social, political way? I thought that was really powerful. And what went through your mind when you were hearing him talk about? this issue in these terms? Well, it's funny. When I've done over 200 interviews for the film, and sometimes you do an interview and you just know, wow, this person is amazing. And Dr. Tarantolo just gave such an incredible viewpoint that one that I kind of understood I was starting to get to through all my interviews. But he was one of those interviews that very succinctly kind of put the point on what I was getting at in the film. So when you hear something like that, you go, oh, my God, I know that's going to make it in the movie. And that's rare among your 200 interviews. 
Uh, one of the takeaways um, from the film is that this mental health crisis in the military is not a new issue. It's been repeating itself throughout history. You know, again, emphasis on preparing the soldier for combat, but not what happens to the soldier after war. And something that you touch on in this film is, you know, after World War II, there was actually a program to help uh, these returning soldiers. Can you talk about the, the history of that? Yeah. In 1944, Franklin Roosevelt was concerned that out of the 100 million American citizens, 16 million were coming back from war. And uh, he knew that if, if something wasn't done to help them, that uh, you know chaos could result. Suddenly there were 16 million people looking for jobs, 16 million people with some sort of you know psychological problems. So uh, he instituted for the, heart, for the worst cases uh, these hospitals, I think in Long Island, where they would kind of help treat these guys. They were just pilot programs. And then uh, Franklin Roosevelt died uh, soon after the war ended, and the programs went away. So uh, they were just test programs, and they were very successful at the time, but nobody, con- nobody had the will to kind of continue them after he passed away. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of notables in this documentary, um, including we hear from uh, former uh, Department of Defense Secretary Robert Gates, and you know he actually pointed the finger at, at Congress in terms of you know, there there have been programs that um, the military has allocated some money for, um, especially in the last several years where there's been all this attention on this crisis. But when it comes down to it, when it comes time for the budget battles in Congress, any money allocated to help the active duty service member, the veteran, their caregiver, those are the first programs that are slashed. Yeah, I mean, a lot of programs are slashed, and the point is they're not given any priority within the military. And that, again, goes to the lack of a behavioral health corps, which would allow power to the psychiatrists, the social workers, and the psychologists to help set policy within the military. Right now, they're just absolutely not a priority within the military. So the programs are some of the first to get cut. Did you get a sense when you spoke to um, you know, Robert Gates, to the former Joint Chiefs of Staff, uh, Admiral um, Mike Mullen, um, all of these people who've had these, you know, careers in the military and in our in our defense. Uh, is there really going to be a shift, do you believe, um, in how they view this problem? Robert Gates and Mike Mullen are, are exceptional human beings who already view the problem with concern. Uh, will there be a shift in the military? We have something that Dr. Mark Russell calls in this country a national reset. So we go to war, we have a suicide or mental health epidemic, and then we kind of forget about it. And then we go to war again, and we have another crisis, and then we forget about it. And this has happened from World War II to Korea to Vietnam through the Iraq and Afghanistan wars, Desert Storm. I don't know is my answer. I feel like and I hope we are at a tipping point in terms of mental health in this country, period. And I'm hoping things will change. But my answer is I don't know. Mm Um, The federal VA has not escaped attention in the last couple of years. You know, this billion-dollar medical and benefit system that was created to help veterans, and it obviously, this bureaucracy isn't keeping up with demand, whether it's, you know, giving veterans timely medical appointments or getting them their service-connected, you know, disability benefits. In your film, you focus in on some of these non-traditional, non-VA programs and therapies that are out there. These are programs that are filling that gap. Can you tell us about, you know, that part of your film and, and, and how you found Save a Warrior? Yes. Uh, my investor was adamant that he didn't want a film that was just going to point out the problems and seem hopeless. So we went on a search for solutions pretty quickly, and we discovered there were 40,000 non-governmental organizations uh, by, that were created by concerned citizens to help the veteran. And one of the ones I found through Lula Bello, 
uh, was this organization called Save a Warrior, which was founded by Jay Clark, and it was out in Malibu. And so we took Kenny through the program, and it had an incredibly transformative effect on Kenny. Kenny was also successfully going through cognitive therapy afterward, but Save a Warrior became one of the components that, that helped him. So our argument was, you know, it's not just cognitive therapy. It's not just medicine. There's these other methods of alternative therapy that can also help veterans. And the VA should take a look at that. And I think the VA has started to consider programs like this. There's a local connection in the film. Uh, your team interviewed Mike Zakea. He's a retired Marine lieutenant colonel and a Iraq War veteran. He lives in Connecticut. We've interviewed him many times. Um, but something that struck me is, you know, Mike is one of these veterans who's been medically retired um, from the service, and he had to restart his life again when he got back. And now he's become an outspoken veteran advocate. I think Zakea is an example of so many of these veterans who come home, find a way to heal, and then they commit to helping other veterans. They're the ones that are creating, you know, Save a Warrior and these other, these other programs out there. Well, I take two of my veterans to a Native American uh, reservation, the Pine Ridge Reservation in South Dakota, and uh, they're being talked to by a Vietnam-era veteran who's a Native American who looks at the guys and basically tells them they need to have a sense of mission even after they leave the military. And he says an amazing line, which is, the battleground is right here. So when you leave war and you come back to the United States, your mission should not be over. And, and someone like Mike Zakea sees that. I've heard through the producer that you're starting a nonprofit that will help veterans. Can you talk about that? Yes, we are starting a nonprofit called BHC Now, and the sole purpose is to raise awareness for the need for a behavioral health corps in the military, where the psychiatrists, the social workers, and the psychologists would share information and be able to help set military policy at the start of a war. You spoke to a lot of veterans in the filming of Thank You for Your Service. How are they doing? Um, do you still talk with them, you know, when you wrap a project like this? I mean, what's the involvement after the fact? Yeah, very much. I mean, most of them are going to show up at the premiere Friday. So that should be a really uh, emotional evening. Lou is actually training Kurdish fighters in Kurdistan to fight against ISIS. Kenny is now married and still living in Salt Lake City, Utah. William is a uh, military social worker in Santa Barbara, California. So they're all doing amazingly well. And Phil works on a horse ranch. So another reason to, to see the film so we can uh, follow the journey that these veterans um, have, have gone on uh, through the years after their service. I've been speaking with Tom Donahue. He's director and producer of the new documentary, Thank You for Your Service. It premieres at Doc NYC this Friday, November 13th. Tom, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Lucy. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel in for John Dankosky. Coming up, we hear a story about two women. They call themselves the Hugging and Kissing Grannies, who greet soldiers traveling through airports while home on leave. This is where we live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel in for John Dankosky. Tomorrow is Veterans Day, and we've been focusing on them this hour. It's not front and center in the news, but there are still American troops serving in Afghanistan and Iraq, as well as other parts of the world. When U.S. soldiers come back home on leave, they fly through a few central airports. For soldiers headed west to the Mississippi River, that airport is DFW. Producer Julia Barton profiles two women who go out of their way to greet soldiers coming through the Dallas-Fort Worth airport. The old international arrivals gate is walled off from the rest of Terminal B at DFW Airport. 
so most travelers never see this hall covered with banners like Highland Village Elementary says welcome home and God bless y'all. A small crowd of nervous relatives, veterans, and other volunteers has been milling around, waiting for an incoming plane load of soldiers to get through customs and claim their bags. It's pretty obvious when they're finally headed our way. The soldiers are still in desert camouflage. They go down the line shaking hands. But around the corner, before they see anyone else here, they get hugs from two women waving red, white, and blue pom-poms. Linda Tennerman and Constance Carmen live in nearby Grand Prairie. They've been coming to the airport nearly every day for the last three years. Somewhere along the way, they transformed from volunteers into icons. Well, you know, after uh, we started coming, it, it, it seemed like they were all so young, and we have grandchildren, and uh, it... They, they would come and hug us and uh, because, you know, they're just happy to see someone. So we've kind of said, oh, we'll be the hug and kissing grandmas for all of these kids. Connie's wearing a red T-shirt that says hugging and kissing grandma. She's the softer-spoken one with silver-gray hair. Her longtime church friend and fellow widow Linda wears a matching red T-shirt. Linda's whoops pierce even the bombastic music over the speakers. Well, we're a little loud sometimes. <laughs> And so that's, I've tried to tone myself down, but I'm just so happy, you know, when they come in and I really want to greet them. But I've tried to tone it down a little bit because, you know, it alarms some of them. About 120 soldiers run the gauntlet of greeters today. Ian Pounds of the 82nd Airborne Division stands outside, looking a little dazed in the mild sunlight, not sure what to make of his first R&R leave. Overwhelming. Just everybody clapping and stuff. That's a little, it's a little too much. So, but it's nice because I'm from Austin, so I'm happy to be back in Texas. What are your plans for your for your break? Just hang out with family, and you want the the, the truth or the public relations thing? <laughs> I'm gonna study the Bible, hang out with my family, and hang out at the park also. Or not? <laughs> I want to drink some beer. Is what I want to do. I'm that's the truth. <laughs> And Pounds heads on to a shuttle bus to grab a flight to Austin, the last leg of his four-day journey from Iraq. Down the sidewalk, Sergeant Matthew Hibbert is waiting to go to Kansas City. He's been in the military for nine years, so he knows that rest and relaxation leave isn't always relaxing. You expect everything to be put on hold when you got back, you know. As far as you're concerned, you know, wherever home is, you're, you're expecting it to change, but everything does. So when you get home, it's like, wow, they tore down that old place there. Oh, my wife dyed her hair again, or just little things that you're not quite expecting. Hibbert's happy to have the warm welcome when he flies into DFW Airport, and it seems like a lot of soldiers cherish the hugging and kissing grandmas. Some are on long layovers here, so the grandmas take them out to lunch or dinner. They're kind of a neutral way station between the fraught worlds of family and military life. Uh, there's a lot that they're going through, and, and they are happy to see a grandma image when they come back. They really are. And uh, sometimes they'll kid around with us, and other times they have serious things in their mind they like to talk to us about. Like the soldier who called his wife to pick him up from the airport, only to find out he was being divorced. Connie and Linda say they're constantly urging young soldiers not to get married while on leave because they've seen so many of these relationships crash later. Most of the soldiers they only see briefly, but twice. First when they fly in, and then two to three weeks later, just down the terminal, when they reassemble and are put back on military duty. Zero, three, zero. 
135 remains in effect. Track Order 155 states consumption of alcoholic beverages is prohibited while in duty status or while in uniform. It's not so festive in this part of the terminal. Here, Connie and Linda stash their pom-poms away. They line up with a few other volunteers to say goodbye to the soldiers. They're standing in for a lot of anxious moms, like one who tracked them down to send an email later. She was so thankful that we were here and could not believe that we would wrap our arms around her son, a total stranger, uh, to send him off. Some of the soldiers have teddy bears, souvenirs from loved ones, strapped to their military-issued backpacks. They look preoccupied and sad. Handshakes and hugs seem like a choreographed consolation in the face of casualties, extended deployments, or the isolation of life on base. But no one turns them down. In Dallas, I'm Julia Barton. A Hug on the Way Home was reported and produced by Julia Barton. You can check out more of Julia's work on PRX at prx.org. Our show is produced by Lydia Brown, Tucker Ives, Betsy Kaplan, and Josh Nalea. Our technical producer is Kion Wolf. WNPR's digital editor is Heather Brandon. The executive producer of Where We Live is Katie Tularski. You can continue this conversation on our website, wnpr.org slash where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Thanks for listening. <laughs>